our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Welcome to Christ the King. If you are with us here visiting or with us for the first time in a while, we're moving through Hebrews, and Hebrews 4, 1 to 11 is the continuation of the passage that we were in last week at the end of chapter 3. So for the sake of those who are just joining us, or probably even for the sake of those who were here last week, I'll set the scene once again. For most of last week's sermon, we were journeying with the Israelites in the Exodus. The Exodus when God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. We saw from the very beginning of that Exodus that that deliverance that God achieved had a goal. It had a destination. The people knew that. God told Moses to tell them that. Exodus 6, verse 6, God spoke to Moses and said, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It was for life with God in a place that Israel was delivered from Egypt. And so with the Egyptians dead on the seashore, the people sang about that. They anticipated it. In, this, in, the, in the lyrics sung in Exodus 15, verse 13, You have led in your steadfast love, O Lord, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary your hands have established. They knew what the Lord had promised them. Life with God in a place. So, in Exodus 14.31, on the shores of the Red Sea, the text said, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But... By the time that Exodus generation comes to the border of the promised land in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, things had changed. Numbers 13, for 40 days the people wait for the spies whom the Lord had instructed Moses to send into the land. Then came their report. The people who dwell in the land are strong, the spies say. The cities are fortified and very large, or in other words, we can't go in there. We're afraid. Numbers 14, verse 2, the people grumble. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Only I would remind you that there was another response that day. It wasn't a response from very many people, but there was another response. It was the response of faith. 
Numbers 14, verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, listen to this, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread for us. Meaning, piece of cake. Right? Why? Here's why. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Brothers and sisters, that's faith. Conducting one's life on the assumption that the promises of God are certain and that God's power to fulfill those promises are, is assured. That the promises of God are certain and God's power to fulfill those promises is assured. How does Hebrews 11 verse 1 put it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. So Joshua and Caleb plead with the people to have faith. Do not rebel against the Lord. But then came the response that we considered in Numbers 14 verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. And as far as we know, that becomes the final verdict. The people don't believe in the Lord. Not that the signs hadn't been there. Not even that the people, if you asked them, would have denied what the Lord had done for them in the past, right? They'd crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground. Manna had continued coming down from heaven day by day by day. The Lord had provided over and over and over for them. And yet, they do not believe in the Lord. They do not believe that what the Lord had promised would, in fact, come to pass. That the Lord would continue to provide for them. That the Lord would bring them in and plant them in his place, as he said he would. And so they would not enter. Not because now they don't want to. In fact, the end of Numbers, they try to. <laughs> but they can't. The Lord declares it in Numbers 14, verse 28. As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. They'll wander for 40 years until the entire generation is dead. Verse 35 of Numbers 14 has a sense of finality to it. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end. There they shall die. And that's where we were last week at the end of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 19, if you have the Bible there to look at, 
where the pastor summarizes that whole thing for us this way, verse 19, chapter 3, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now here we are in chapter 4 and we read verse 1. And now having reviewed the backdrop, though it took a while, I think you begin to see the connection. Therefore, the pastor says, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 is a complex passage. <laughs> if you don't think so yet, you will in about 10 minutes. But for all of its complexity, if this helps, in the end, I think there's only two parts to it. There is the promise, and there is the path. And the pastor basically here is arguing that the promise hasn't ever changed. It's a matter of checking to see whether the path we're on will take us there. <laughs> That's the way I want to look at the text. We're, we're just trying to consider those two things, the promise and the path. And we could consider them in either order, I think fruitfully. The pastor interweaves them, but given the way that the pastor frames this text, particularly in verse 1 and then in, in verse 11, the beginning and the end of it, I'm gonna, I think we'll start with the path. This is where his focus begins. Look once more at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, so we've got to explain what that is, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. If you want to be on the path that leads to the promise, then the pastor says, here's the conclusion, here's the implication, here's what you need to draw from the fact that the Exodus generation was not able to enter that rest. You should fear. Therefore, let us fear, he writes. But the question is, fear what? This is subtle, but notice that verse 1 doesn't say let us fear the possibility that we might not reach the promise. Not, not exactly that. The pastor is not calling his readers to live in constant fear and trepidation that they just might not make it. That for all their efforts to live by faith in the end, they might come up short. No, that's not it. The pastor says, let us fear something lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You hear the difference? In other words, if we do fear, whatever it is the pastor is saying we should rightly fear, the result will be positive. We won't fail to reach that rest. Conversely, failing to fear whatever it is the pastor is saying we need to fear is what leads to the possibility of not reaching that promise. And so the question is, what is it that we're supposed to fear? And 
different people answer this differently. I'm going to give you my answer. You can evaluate it. Think if you see it makes sense. I think the answer is that you and I are supposed to fear unbelief. That's the connection I think the pastor is making back to the last verse of chapter 3, verse 19 of chapter 3. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, fear that. Fear unbelief taking root in your lives. Because that's what will keep you from entering God's rest in the end, you see. Fear not trusting God in your life. Fear faithlessness in your life because that's the only thing that will keep you from entering the promise, right? This is what the pastor goes on now, I think, to say in verse 2. So verse 2 sounds harder than it is. Let's try it. Verse 2, for, in other words, here's why we should fear, if I'm right, fear unbelief, for good news came to us, just as to them, in other words, the promise was the same. Israel received it. We received it. But the message they heard did not benefit them. It sure didn't. They end up dead in the wilderness. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, if it helps you to get a sense of what the pastor's saying there, go ahead and add a word near the end. They were not united by faith with those who who actually listened, who really heard, who had what, a long time ago now when we were in Galatians and I was preaching on this week by week by week, who had what Paul refers to as the hearing of faith. They had it. Rather, they didn't have it, the pastor's saying, of the Exodus generation. In other words, the good news didn't do anything for them when they heard it because they didn't really hear it at all. They didn't have faith. Now, this is a silly example, but my daughter said, you should explain that, Daddy. So, Clara sometimes hears us tell her to clean her room. But she doesn't do that, so what do we say? Didn't you hear me? Yes, Daddy, I heard you. No, didn't you hear me? Clean your room. There's hearing and there's hearing. It's the hearing of faith. That's what the pastor's after. They didn't have it. They weren't united with those who did have faith. We saw this plainly in Numbers 14, didn't we? Who were the ones who had faith in that moment at Kadesh Barnea? It was Caleb and Joshua. The rest of the people weren't like them. They were not united by faith with those who listened. They weren't like Caleb and Joshua or like the people of God of all ages who listen obediently. They weren't willing to identify with them. I do want to stress for you what the pastor is saying here because I, this is really important. The deficiency wasn't in what they heard. I want to convince you of that. I hope it's clear. Good news came to us just as to them, the pastor says. Good news is language, of course, that's usually translated, often translated gospel in the New Testament. The gospel came to us just as to them. 
There'll be lots more to say later in Hebrews on this very subject. But sometimes I think we lose sight of this. I think we lose sight of the fact that, yes, the gospel came to Israel. I don't mean that they understood all that we understand of how fundamentally in an eternal sense it is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that, that proclaims most clearly the gospel. But the gospel came to Israel. So, for example... Among the things known by the Exodus generation was what had been declared by the Lord on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passes before Moses. Who does the Lord fundamentally proclaim to this people that he is? You know the text. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. They had the good news of the forgiveness of their sins. They knew that's who Yahweh was. And I mean then, as we've seen all along, there was the promise that God would bring them into the land to be with them if they would trust him and not rebel. They'd heard the promise they would be his people. He would be their God. With the possibility of this forgiveness of sins came the promise of life with God. What was required was faith. Now, of course, as I said, it's true they didn't know all that we know. They didn't know that the eternal foundation of their forgiveness would be, in fact, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew that God was able to forgive sins somehow. The good news of forgiveness and joyful life with God was theirs. The promise of entering his rest was theirs. You have to understand that that's the case. The issue was not that the promise was deficient. The issue was that they didn't believe it. Their hearts were hard. Oh, but it started out looking okay at the Red Sea. We saw that last week, but then we saw how as they journeyed from the Red Sea into the wilderness, what began to happen? They doubted God. They distrusted God, even when God proved his trustworthiness to them over and over again, so that ultimately what they wanted more than anything else was to go back to their old life in Egypt. Thank you very much. Life with God was not the life they longed for. So the message they heard did not benefit them. Does that make sense? It didn't bring them to the promise. They couldn't enter. In fact, God swore they would never enter his rest. Therefore, the pastor says to us, fear unbelief. Brothers and sisters, that's the point our pastor makes. I think we need to hear it, lest we think that just because we now understand what Paul calls in Colossians 1, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed, Meaning how it is that all this worked. <laughs> how this gospel could be. Just because we now understand that more than they could have, that we are somehow not in danger of being like them. 
being like that Exodus generation? No, that's precisely what the pastor isn't saying. The good news came to us, just as to them. They didn't believe it, and so they died in the wilderness, and the same thing could happen to you. That's why what we need to fear is unbelief. That we hear the promises of God and we don't trust them. That we begin going down this path of grumbling like Israel, testing God like Israel, desiring the second-rate pleasures of the world, frankly, more than the promises of life with God, like Israel. Look up Numbers 11, verse 5 sometime. What they loved was the fish and the leeks and the melon and the garlic that they ate in Egypt. Take us back there. Let us fear, the pastor says. Let us fear. Lest once we begin down that path, we never change course, you see. So you get the point. The path we need to be on is the path of faith. That's what verse 3 says. For, look at verse 3 now. For look, we who have believed, the pastor says. We enter that rest. Such is the pastor's confidence in his hearers. They're not like the wilderness generation. Their hearts aren't hard, as we'll talk about much more as we come to talking about the New Covenant later on in Hebrews and what, what the New Covenant promises. The pastor is, in fact, assured that his hearers are on the way to eternal rest because in contrast to the unbelievers of the wilderness generation, they are those who have believed. Only be really, really careful about how you explain this now, Christian, because in the context here, that rest has to be ultimately in the future. Okay? The pastor intends here to motivate our ongoing, persevering faith not to allow us to rest on a past moment of belief. The force of this verb, we who have believed, is that it remains the state we're in now, unlike the wilderness generation, our journey is in progress. Theirs came to an end, you say. They could not enter because of unbelief. We who have believed are in the process of entering rest. That's how I interpret this. We are in the process of entering that rest. Our entrance into the promised resting place of God is yet awaited. Brothers and sisters, we're not home yet. So don't miss the point. Past belief, though important for us to look back on and, and, and know that the Lord was at work, that we crossed the Red Sea on dry land. <laughs> but past belief is no guarantee of entrance in the end. Past belief is a spur to continued faithfulness. What the pastor is saying is that what determines our entrance in the end is how we live by faith now and tomorrow and the next week and the month after that and for as long as it's called today. 
And I know very well that the pastor is going to urge us very soon, even in verse 16 of this chapter, to draw near now to the throne of grace, he says. I'm not denying for a moment that there are aspects of this rest of God that we can access now in this life. But I'll just briefly note it. We'll talk more in a couple weeks about it. The whole reason we're urged to do that, to draw near to the throne of grace now, is so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need today. As we continue on, the path that leads to the promised rest is faith, brothers and sisters, not as a moment of decision in the past, but as a life lived, trusting in God's power and promises, conducting your life on the assumption that the promises of God are certain, that his power to fulfill those promises is assured. So that, to put it as simply as I think I can, what does that look like day by day as you walk by faith? Looks like obedience. Looks like hearing the word of the Lord. Really hearing it. Verse 6 says, Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of, verse 6, disobedience. We're not like them, the pastor asserts. Therefore, let us fear unbelief entering our lives. My question for you is, do we take this seriously, brothers and sisters? I've said this a lot, but I'll repeat it. Hebrews is written to Christians. The pastor includes them in verse 3 when he says, We who have believed, and so he says to them, let us fear. Does that sound wrong to you? It's not the only time the Bible talks like that. Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul also says, Romans chapter 11, verse 20, They were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. Now, I want to say that the idea is not that we then just live in this constant sense of trepidation that we might not make it because we didn't do quite enough. No. <laughs> we live by faith. Okay, my daughter also likes this illustration, which I didn't use in the first service. She said, Daddy, you should have used it. So I'm going to do this one too. Though it adds a couple minutes to the sermon, which is why I didn't do it in the first service. When you, I tell my daughters, right? I heard, this, I heard another preacher give this example once, and this really resonates for me. When, you, when I tell my daughters, fear running into the street. Right? Why? Because they could die. The car could kill them. Fear the street. Does that mean that when they're in our house, playing, creating their worlds that they create in our living room? Does that mean I want them while they're playing and being who they are in our house, I want them constantly fearing the street? Well, no. But when the time comes when they're out tossing the ball and the ball goes into the street and they're tempted to run into it, I want them to fear the street. You see what I'm getting at? It's not that you just live your everyday life of faith constantly worried that I may not be able to make it in the end. That's not the point. 
The point is when the temptation to not trust the Lord comes, you're afraid of that. You don't want to go anywhere near it. it. Turns you right back around into the world that you know you can live in joyfully, faithfully, walking with the Lord. I don't know if that illustration helps, but my daughter said I should use it, so I'll use it again. Precisely because we live in faith, we know the fearful danger of unbelief. We recognize that it's lethal. So when we find ourselves tempted towards it, what do we do again? Now look at verse 11. This is the last verse I'll bring into the discussion of the path. It sort of says everything we've been saying. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore do what? Strive to enter the rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What do you do if you properly fear unbelief? And you have before you this glorious vision of the God's rest that we'll try and cover in a minute. Answer, you strive. You make every effort. You be diligent. Not because you're earning your way to it, but because this is the life that trusts the Lord. Not doing these things begrudgingly. It's walking with the God. It's walking by faith. And here, I think we can then bring in all the ways that the pastor tries to talk about this. As in terms of striving and fearing. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he says, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Chapter 2, verse 3, don't neglect such a great salvation. Chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Focus your attention on Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart. Look, examine. Verse 13, chapter 3, exhort one another every day. We don't do this alone, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Dear friends, the Christian life is one of day by day, hour by hour, trust in the promises of God to help us, to guide us, to take care of us, to forgive us, to be with us, ultimately to bring us into a future rest that is His rest. There's only one way you don't make it into that rest, and that's unbelief and we know when we start to see that, don't we? Because it shows up as the same sort of disobedience that characterized the wilderness generation of Israel and led to their final fall, the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. That's the path. That's the path that leads us to the promise. So now I'm going to do this very quickly and probably not successfully, but I want to try and say something about the promise as it is articulated in these verses. This is actually the complex part. So I'll try and make it clear, but let me just begin with the end. I'll begin with the conclusion so that if this is all you latch on to, that's fine. Finally, what the pastor's saying regarding the promise is that God's faithful people, past and present from creation right up to, the, to today, God's faithful people have always had the same promise in view that they would ultimately enter into God's presence, the very rest of God himself. That is the promise. Note as we start here, this is not simply, this is not just described as rest in some vague sort of way. It's a promise that the people of God can enter God's rest. Do you see that? 
They shall not enter my rest, it says. It's not even explicitly called our rest, though as we'll see, we, we will be resting and delighted in it. But the focus of the rest has to do with it being where God is. That's the fundamental thing to understand about this. It's his rest. We enter into it. Now, a lot of the remainder of Hebrews will have as its goal to show how the only way that happens, the only way faithful people at all time ever enter into God's rest is through Jesus Christ. That's for later. Here we're asking, well, okay, pastor, how from the Old Testament do you assert that his rest still stands? Didn't they fail to enter it? What will this be like? These are the kinds of questions our passage is trying to answer. And the basic answer is, we know that this promise still stands because all through the history of God's people, God has made it clear that this is his ultimate promise to bring us to himself. And he makes clear that that purpose has yet to be fulfilled fully. So see if we can trace the train of thought, though it's not easy to do. Pastor in verse 1 simply says that the promise of entering his rest still stands. Okay, now he has to show why that's true. So jump to verse 3 where you begin to see why that's a true statement. Verse 3 he says, We who have believed enter that rest because, or as he has said in verse 3, and then the pastor quotes Psalm 95, verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. How does that work? Well, it makes clear that they, meaning the wilderness generation who did not believe, were not allowed to enter his rest. Or that, in other words, according to the psalm, what the wilderness generation was really losing in not being able to enter the land was far more than just life in Canaan. There existed for them the possibility of entering the rest of God. That was what entrance into the land symbolized, if I may put it that way. Their disobedience prevents their entering not just the land, but that rest as well. But if that's the case, if there really is, is such a thing as the rest of God that this wilderness generation was being kept out of, well, then how, how is that the case? Where would we look in the scriptures to understand what God's rest could mean? And the answer that the pastor seems to say is uh, just go back to the beginning. Go to the foundation of the world, because that was the beginning of the rest of God. The pastor explains this is the significance of the end of verse 3. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, God's rest already existed. It wasn't something God created just for the wilderness generation. No, the point is God wants to bring his people into his rest. He was inviting them into his rest for Verse 4 says, look at verse 4, he has somewhere, in Genesis 2, verse 2, <laughs> in fact, spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. You want to know what God means when he says, my rest, they will not enter my rest, in Psalm 95, verse 11, then you go to the place in the scriptures that describe God resting. 
Genesis 2, verse 2. The rest of God begins at creation after God has completed his works. Now, I mean, we can hardly begin in this moment to sketch the significance of what it means to say that God rested on the seventh day of creation. But at least I can say this, it was a celebration. <laughs> when God rests in Genesis 2, it is to say, it's all good. Everything's right with the world, if you will. It's not because God was tired and needed a breather. See, we just import our own notions of rest into this all over the place. We think, well, it means God took a nap. No. It was that his great work of creation was completed. And he enters into it as the sovereign God who had done it. And so at that moment, all was whole and peaceful and right and harmonious. It's the rest of God. And you see... Here's the promise. It's going to be that way again. The same God who created all things is in the process of recreating them. Redeeming them, in fact. Through his son, the one under whose feet he's even now making all his enemies a footstool and the one who is appointed heir of all things. Remember from chapter 1. Because analogous to the rest that God enjoyed on the seventh day of creation, there is to come an eternal Sabbath rest. A Sabbath celebration, literally, of perfect shalom. When we, you and I and all people of faith, when we and God will join together to enjoy the wholeness and the peace and the justice and the victory and the harmony of creation redeemed. When you will live life with God in a place, it is that rest to which Abraham and all those of faith looked forward. Hebrews 11 verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder was God. It was always the plan and the purpose of God to redeem the world through his son and into that redeemed creation to bring you and all his redeemed people. So that, yeah, the wilderness generation may have rejected God's rest, but others wouldn't. Verse 6 of our passage, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, what's the point? David wrote these words of the psalm. David, well, David was the king who lived in the land, the land that the wilderness generation wasn't allowed to go into. And David is one even of whom it was said, if you remember in 2 Samuel 7, that the Lord had given him rest. Was that the fulfillment of the promise? Oh no. David knew. David knew that the rest that he and his people briefly enjoyed in the land, that was not the fulfillment of the promise. Nor had it ever been. 
life in the land of Canaan wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. There was another day to come. Verse 8, for if Joshua, Joshua being the one who took Israel into the land, right? After the wilderness generation all died. Joshua, who lived long before David, if Joshua had given them rest, which he didn't, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Doesn't mean there wasn't some rest in the land. Doesn't mean there weren't passages in Joshua that talk about rest. There are. Go look them up. But it's not the final rest. And so David wrote Psalm 95. You see, the promised rest was more than earthly Canaan. And so this is the way it keeps going. And you come to the conclusion of the matter finally in Hebrews 3 verse 9. And the pastor brings us into the present and he says... In these last days in which we live, the pastor proclaims, so then there is a rest to enter into. God has a plan for his people to join him after all. Here it is. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The verb that's used is not the same as God's rest. The word rest actually isn't there. It's just the verb that means to celebrate the Sabbath. It's the culmination. It's the end. It's the unshakable kingdom. It's the ultimate blessing. It's the eternal celebration. You'll be there. If you're on the path of faith. And then we too shall rest. Verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Because then our pilgrimage is over. Our striving is ceased. Our struggle is completed. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13 pictures this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. Why? That they may rest from their labors. For their deeds follow them. Brothers and sisters, today God's voice is speaking, summoning you to embrace this promise with faith-filled hearts. Ours will be to join this rest of God, the future destination of unthreatened, uninterrupted communion with the Lord. I hope you want that. More than you want the melons of Egypt. How else could the pastor conclude? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.